Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for attending this fireside chat today. I have the immense pleasure of introducing our speakers today, both of which are incredibly thoughtful individuals in respected fields and have contributed greatly. Before I, I introduce them further, could I please remind all participants of SwapCard and the office hours after this session? You can ask uh, questions through the SwapCard app by clicking through to the event page and then live discussions. There will be a feature to ask questions. Um, Abra will be taking questions uh, to ask to Will McCaskill uh, in the second half of this fire chat chat. Uh, will will also be having an office hours directly after this. This will be held in Kepler on the first floor. Now to our two guests today. Firstly, we have Abra Gamps. Abra became involved in EA since her first year at Oxford in 2015. While she studied maths and philosophy, she ended up in a degree in classics. Since restricting ancient Greek to her spare time, she started working in AI safety, performing research at ETH and MIT. She has a master's in logic and is about to start a new position as a researcher at the Yale, Ethics, uh, sorry, Yale Digital Ethics Center. Will McCaskill is an associate professor in philosophy at the University of Oxford. At the time of his, at his appointment, he was the youngest associate professor of philosophy anywhere in the world. He helped to co-found the nonprofits Giving What We Can, the Center for Effective Altruism, and 80,000 Hours, which together have moved over $300 million of money to effective charities. He is the author of two books, Doing Good Better and What We Owe the Future. Could we please have a massive round of applause to our two speakers today? Uh, this is, welcome, everyone. Thank you all for being here. Will, thank you especially for being here. Cool. Thank you for uh, having me. It's a delight. Excellent. So, just to start off, we're at EAGX Berlin. It's 2023, as I'm sure everyone's aware. This is around 14 years after you originally founded Giving What We Can in 2009. What did you envision Giving What We Can becoming? You know, what did you anticipate when you started talking about something called effective altruism? Um, yeah, it's a great question. And can I just check, does it, can everyone hear me okay? And can everyone hear Abra okay? Okay, perfect. Um, yeah, so I really did not expect Giving What We Can to become like this big thing. Um, I remember very early on before it launched, uh, Toby Ord, I mean, you know, the main force and the co-founder of Giving What We Can, uh, commenting like, oh, maybe one day we'll need to hire the part-time secretary to like fill in the pledge forms and like post them out. And I was like, wow, that'll never happen. And so that was kind of like the standard mm. that I had. And in particular at the time, like giving what we can at launch uh, was 23 people. Um, every single person who took the pledge was this huge deal because we reckoned, you know, typical person, middle class income in a rich country will earn a couple of million euros over the course of their life, 10% 10, 10 of that's 200,000 euros. Um, that's, a lot of, that's a huge amount of money, even when you factor in, okay, not everyone will um, take the pledge and so on. But that's a huge amount of money that's like hundreds of lives, maybe thousands of lives saved. Um, and that was just extremely exciting. And so the next year we got to 89 members, and that was huge too. Um, and so now, yeah, it's like many, it's orders of magnitude larger than I was, than I was expecting. 
Thank you very much. Uh, perhaps to come back on that a little, it is indeed orders of magnitude larger than you're expecting, but it's also fewer than 10,000 people who've sort of officially signed up to the Giving What We Can pledge. Do you worry that that is a failure, that effective altruism, despite having got so large, is not working as intended? Uh, yeah, I mean, again, it depends on uh, where you draw the kind of comparison. Obviously, I wish it were 10, 100 times bigger than it was. Um, and one thing that is notable is there is maybe, um, especially with people taking the pledge, uh, a little less in the way of kind of organic growth. You might think that just, okay, every year, just from the membership base alone, they go and convince two people or something. And then you get very large growth without having to put much additional effort into it. Whereas it seems like, no, you need to do the kind of investment in um, outreach and advocacy and going on podcasts and so on to keep that growth going. Mm -hmm. um, however, that might well change. I mean, we've seen in some cases, like within... Uh, smaller communities. So Jesus College, Cambridge, uh, for a couple of years just had this amazing shift where some significant fraction of everyone in the college just took the pledge. <laughs> and that made me think, oh, maybe if you can just, within sub, sub, some sub-communities, create it as a norm, like the mm -hmm. default, um, then you could get much, much larger numbers of people. And so often you see with uh, social change kind of tipping point phenomena um, where no one does X or believes X, and then suddenly it switches, and that's the normal thing to do. I think if we can keep pushing and get it to that um, point with effective giving and giving 10%, then, yeah, maybe we could start to get much more rapid growth, and suddenly it would be 100,000, a million people who've taken the pledge. Mm. On that, there are communities that have historically done this. Christians, Muslims have you know, a 10% tithe in some communities. Have you wanted or uh, experimented with trying to reach out more to them and convert them to giving, sort of, in your view, effectively, as opposed to converting new people to giving in the first place? Uh, yeah, I mean, one thing we historically found was that it was much harder, surprisingly, it was much harder to get people to switch where they were giving than it was to get them to increase their giving. And if you have this kind of economist rational choice model of human behavior, that doesn't make much sense because you'd think it's no sacrifice at all to switch where you're giving, um, but a big sacrifice to increase. But that's not how people are at all. You get very invested in the causes you're already working on. Like when I, because you know, I was donating to Oxfam, to UNICEF, to Samaritans, um, and then you know, I was, at the same time I was working on deworming, and I was like, I guess I've got to just cancel these donations. And it was awful. And I did it you know, many months later than perhaps I should have done and so on. And in, but in most cases, you can get people to say, look, keep donating to the places you're already giving and switch where you're giving mm -hmm. and actually, with additional money you donate. And as it happens, I think that's much more likely to happen, I think. Mm -hmm. So we've talked about effective giving. That's something you worked on earlier in your career. But you now have a new book or a book published last year and published this year, I believe, in German. Just a few days ago, I think. Wonderful. And that is Was wir der Zukunft schulden, I believe, in German, or What We Owe the Future. So that is talking about long-termism. You, you've talked before about maybe an intermediary. There, there are some areas which are useful and helpful both for in the short term and in the long term. Could you maybe give a couple of examples of areas you think are really effective there at doing both? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I actually think, so I mean, this is kind of one of the main bits of criticism the book has gotten from within EA. It's just like, it's like a weaker argument for some things that are actually strong on other grounds. Mm. Um, so like an analogy, uh, you know, 
the focus on climate change was about future generations for many decades. We could have just been talking about air pollution, which kills 7 million people every year from fossil fuels alone. Mm. Um, perhaps if we'd done that, actually, we would have just made a lot more progress on climate change. Um, so similarly, I think most of the things that people, in fact, do under the long-term as Timpanella are very beneficial in the near term as well. Mm -hmm. So um, risk of worst-case pandemics, and it's like, okay, what sort of things are we trying to do to prepare against that? Well, one is just better personal protective equipment. Another is um, better sterilization techniques. So, for example, research into low-wavelength light that has the potential to sterilize the air of busy areas. That would massively reduce just colds, pneumonia, common respiratory infections, um, as well as being protective against worst-case pandemics. Um, similarly with AI, um, you know, the long-term risks from AI are potentially only five years away. Um, I mean, it's very hard to know how fast things will go, but you know, I wouldn't be surprised if we got to human-level artificial intelligence in five, ten years. Um, these are actually you know, really quite pressing threats for us. Um, there are some things one can do from a long-term perspective that will only pay off after many decades and involve therefore a bit more of a, a sacrifice. I do think that many forms of social change are like that, where, like with giving what we can, the first, you know, you're working on this, you've only got this small impact to begin with, but you're at the start of what could be like a very large and exponential um, process. So yeah, so I think like working on AI risk, that extends your life expectancy because um, like if you buy the arguments at least, they, you know, we may well die as a result of AI. Um, similarly, um, pandemics, even more, less controversially, um, we may well die from another pandemic, and working on it now protects our lives, protects the lives of the present generation, mm -hmm. as well as future generations. So. You talk there about social change and how that can have such a long-lasting impact. Uh, so far, EA often goes more towards maybe how individuals can have an impact, what they can give, what they can research, rather than them trying to affect political change and change sort of the underlying system in some sense that we're working within. Do you think there should be more of a focus in that direction? Uh, yeah, I kind of, I think the premise is not wholly true. So there's definitely a focus on individual action in a sense that has to be true, where all actions taken are the actions of individuals. And so if I say, well, society, and many people like the reason like this, they say society should be like this. And I'm like, okay, well, who changes? Who has to do what mm -hmm. in order for us to get to there? And then there's a second thing, about, which is that are the actions we're recommending actions to try to change political systems, um, or are they individual philanthropy or volunteering? And it's certainly true that there's a lot of focus on philanthropy. Um, however, there's a lot of focus on... Um, what you might think of as institutional or systemic change as well. Um, we're certainly seeing that within the realm of existential risk reduction. Um, in particular in the UK, which I know a little bit better, mm. there really seems to be amazing receptivity to um, both concerns about worst case pandemics and concerns about AI risk. And it really looks to me like the UK might lead the charge in terms of safety on pandemic preparedness, where that means things like, um, you know, having regular monitoring um, of wastewater or uh, other sorts of detection um, for very early detection of um, new pathogens, uh, to perhaps have better regulation and gain of function research. 
Um, and then within, within AI as well, not only investing as a government enormously into AI safety, um, but also setting up a system of um, evaluations. Because you know, if you want to build a car and sell a car, you have to pass like 200, 300 safety checks. Um, if you want to build an AI model and release it to the world, there's literally zero. Mm -hmm. um, so instead, we could get to a more mature regulatory environment where you want, to, you want to sell an AI model, then it has to pass a, a suite of evaluations. Um, that, is, that idea is getting a lot of traction within the UK government, and um, uh, that's just terrific. And I think, it's, I think in these areas in particular, it's just going to be necessary um, to be able to solve the problem. Mm -hmm. I might quickly ask, and you sure. may have no idea on this, do you know of what factors might be leading to that in the UK government, like the setup of the AI task force and so on? Uh, I think there's a couple of things. Um, one, honestly, is just a lot of... Uh, yeah, I think one is just a political climate thing mm -hmm. where, um, you know, I spent a lot of time in the US as well, not so much time in Germany. The US is just this... I mean, it's just a crazy place politically, and everyone's just at war with one another all the time. Mm -hmm. um, the UK... You know, I come back to the UK... And I'm like, even when Boris Johnson, I'm not a Boris Johnson fan. And even when he, I was like, oh my God, I'm so happy that it's him rather than Trump. <laughs> this is just like completely different world. But the UK government is just like, it's a bit nerdier, essentially. And, they're, and thereby more willing to just like think, oh, okay, these are really important arguments and let's just work on them without things necessarily becoming like partisan. Yep. Um, so that's been one thing. Um, and then secondly, honestly, is a big, is the fact that there's just been uh, you know, now a couple of decades of people who've come through Oxford and Cambridge often, um, or kind of other universities in the UK, been exposed to these arguments and are now in positions, whether that's in the civil service or positions, um, relevant positions in um, entrepreneurship and so on. Um, then other particular things, so the fact that uh, Demis Hassabis, the CEO of DeepMind, is highly concerned about existential risk and always has been, um, is a really big factor on the AI side. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, there's certain like lucky things as well that I mm. think help. So. so talking about AI risk, talking about the long-term AI risk and how that might even potentially affect the next five years, Humans have not necessarily always proven themselves to be accurate forecasters. A generation ago, we were really worried about global cooling and uncontrollable population growth. Mm. Now, less so. Given our lack of predictive ability, can we be effective long-termists? Yes, I guess I want to say two things here. Um, one is that uncertainty cuts both ways. Mm. So um, if you think, oh yeah, we're really bad at predicting the future, well, that means that, say, technological progress can be much slower than we expect. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, we still don't have these flying cars that we were promised as children. Um, but it also means it can be much faster than we expect. So the abilities of large language models took everyone by surprise. Like, even, I mean, there's a handful of people that thought we would have AGI by now. But really, the large majority of machine learning researchers, even those who are quite bullish in terms of AI progress, just thought that these large language models were far more powerful mm. um, than they anticipated. That was true for me as well. And so absolutely, I think, for any sorts of predictions, like when might we get to human-level artificial intelligence, we should have these big error um, large error bars, we should be skeptical of any particular argument. But that can mean preparing for things coming sooner than we expect, as well as coming longer. 
Then there's a, se a second part of, your, um, of the worry, which is, okay, even if we're not talking about predictions over the coming decades, but the idea of long-termism is, you know, there really might be things that impact not just decades or hundreds of years, but very, very far into the future. Well, then I think that is true for most things. We don't know how it will impact the very, very long run. But I just, I think it's not true for all, and that's a really important fact about the world, where if the human species goes extinct, we're not gonna come back from that. Like, we just know, given basic science, that we won't magically re-evolve. Mm. Um, so actually, that is something that would have this indefinitely long-lasting effect. Um, somewhat more controversially, and the arguments are harder to make, harder to get into, but um, values, I think, are like this as well, where I think there are good arguments for thinking that at least at the point where we've got human level or greater artificial intelligence, um, what values are influential in society, they could have the p possibility to persist for an extraordinarily long time. And so th th that's why it's those two things that get particularly focused on. On the note of values, we are thinking about value lock-in and worrying about it, so where our values, either through AGI or another mechanism, become sort of more permanent. And we want to have the right ones, whether locked in or not. Given that's something we're thinking about now from our sort of current moral perspective, which is contingent on various factors, mm. do you worry that we're not on the right track, that there should be, or that there should be another way of doing this such that we can allow for continual change of values and norms. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I absolutely worry that we're not on the right track. Uh, I also worry this is the sort of issue that will not get very much attention by default. So we've seen this amazing um, change in opinion, for example, around AI over the last year, where um, suddenly people are taking extinction risk from AI very, very seriously. Uh, to, to a certain extent, I expected that. The, the speed of the change was faster than expected, but the underlying kind of uh, incentives are that people don't want to die, so they're going to take these sorts of risks very seriously. But the argument instead that, well, maybe we're just making some deep moral mistakes in the same way that, you know, if the political leaders of the Roman Empire in 100 AD were debating, were building AGI and debating what to do, they probably wouldn't be thinking as a top priority, oh, maybe we're really mistaken about this slavery business, or maybe we're really mistaken about like, the, you know, this intensely patriarchal society that we have. Uh, and that's a way in which I think things could seem to go well, but we still lose out on um, almost all value, where perhaps, yeah, kind of modern Western liberal thought, progressive thought is making as deep moral mistakes as uh, the Roman um, slaveholders were. And so that's why I talk about the importance of trying to delay as much as we can any points of lock-in where, um, yeah, concentration of power into the hands of a small number, small number of um, beings or agents uh, could be one. Uh, the point in time at which we spread to other solar systems could be another point of lock-in. Formation of a world government could be another point of lock-in. Um, in as far as possible, we want to delay those points, keep our options open as much as possible, and also try and reflect and deliberate as much as possible so that we can at least have, you know, as reflective and well-informed and thoughtful model views as possible at the point of any of these irreversible decisions. If we were, as a world, to come up with a set of values that we thought were perfect, you know, we've thought for a long time and really 
we are pretty sure these are the right ones. Should we lock those in, or should we allow for moral change? Uh, yeah, I mean, it depends on exactly how you um, spell it out. I mean, if it really was the case that, you know, we've, um, we're just absolutely confident that we've figured it out, you know, spent thousands of years, millions of years maybe, there's like, we've had every single possible counter-argument and so on, um, then yes, then like those, they should, they're by definition the best <laughs> values we could have, they should, con they should continue indefinitely. Um, uh, I don't think there's anything necessarily intrinsically good about diversity and change over time. Um, however, we should have an extraordinarily high bar um, for reaching that. It couldn't just be that a handful of people have all converged on the same thing, because maybe they had all the same starting biases going into the process. Yeah. Moving on a little from value lock-in to maybe technological lock-in, technological stagnation. Um, our current way of life is pretty unsustainable. I think people agree with that in various ways. Should we necessarily cut back, allow for technological stagnation to happen, so decrease our rate of technological process, uh, progress, decrease the amount of resources we're using, and in that sense, maybe also allow for a longer period of reflection about values before pressing forward with AI and other technologies? Okay, yeah, so I think there's kind of two things going on there. One is this idea of sustainability, where sustainability is normally about, um, it's normally thought in terms of growth and the arguments like, oh, we're growing too fast, that's the unsustainable, unsustainable thing. Um, but working on this more and reflecting on it more, um, I actually think just the current level of technological progress we're at is unsustainable. So supposing we never invent anything ever again, <laughs> and supposing we even try and live in a more um, kind of eco way, uh, nonetheless, I think we would burn through all fossil fuels, which um, would be literally unsustainable in the sense of like, okay, sure, it take takes several centuries, even thousands of years, but then we would have to just find other fuel sources that probably we couldn't, we couldn't have. Um, and secondly, it would be like an unmitigated climate disaster as well. Because the idea of getting to everyone to have, you know, literally zero carbon emissions, that's just not possible with our current level of technological development. Um, and so actually, we need further technological progress to be able to get ourselves out of the unsustainable level that we're currently in mm. um, via um, uh, clean energy, um, via, in the, in the long run, like better ability to take um, carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere as well. Uh, and so that's one way in which um, I think that this yeah, period of technological stagnation would actually, if it was literal stagnation indefinitely, would actually be quite bad. Um, that's even putting aside the other sorts of ongoing risks we have. So having 9,000 nuclear weapons, most of which are, many of which are on like hair trigger alert, is also not a sustainable situation. Because one day, <laughs> maybe the risk per year is only 0.1%. That means in the long run, we are uh, guaranteed a nuclear Armageddon. So again, we need to get to a state where we don't have that risk at all. Um, you did say, though, the question of values, um, and that is something that's uh, that's something that's really tricky. Where supposing, especially when we focus on particular technologies, so okay, let's say AGI is going to be a point of value lock-in. It's not guaranteed, but it could be. Um, do we want to delay that by as much as possible? Um, like, if we could delay it by tens of thousands of years, would we want to? 
Um, and I think that's a very hard question and depends on whether we would expect continued model progress over that time period or whether we would expect model regress instead. Um, and I think, it's, I think it's subtle, I guess. This is something you touched on a little earlier as well. What are the factors that lead to moral progress? Is it just like having a society? Do they naturally progress? Or do you think that there are specific aspects that lead to moral progress? Yeah, I think they don't naturally. I think, I don't think there's this like, you know, inevitable arc of moral progress. Mm. Uh, I think it arises out of certain contingent factors. So I think people being richer is a, seems robustly good to me. Um, because acting morally is something like a luxury good. I'm more likely to be concerned about how things go from an impartial perspective if I and my family have all my immediate needs met. Um, people being generally better educated and having like, greater literacy, that just also seems pretty robustly good to me because it means you've got more, um, essentially, like, more opportunities that people can... Um, for people to provide kind of moral arguments or insights. Um, having a liberal society where people can protest in the streets, people can make arguments, um, is quite uh, very like broad freedom of speech. Um, that again seems very good from the perspective of leading to uh, moral progress. Um, because again, it means you can get arguments coming from, from anywhere. Uh, then I think also just like a virtue, having a virtue of scientific reasoning, um, where in general, the way I think we do make moral progress, or at least often, is by taking our capacity for reason and reflection and thinking about more um, abstract moral principles, which is something that we have taken from uh, our scientific reasoning and other domains. Um, so those are some of the things I think uh, help, but by no means guarantee moral progress. Thank you very much. Unfortunately, I will soon have to bring this section to a close, which means that everyone else will, will hopefully now be at your disposal. If you please go on the Swap Card app, you can submit questions if you navigate to this talk, go on Live Discussion. There are three tabs. Click on the middle one, which is Questions, and you can submit them there. Just to finish up, there are a lot of people here and at this conference. There are a lot of effective altruists and uh, people who are also maybe just beginning their careers. Are there cause areas that you think people should really be prioritizing now? Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, uh, I guess two I'd highlight in particular. Um, I mean, the past year of AI progress um, has really involved a lot of updates for me. Um, basically, just things moved a lot faster than I expected. Um, that means two things. One is I've got greater probability on very advanced AI systems coming sooner. Um, like for the first time in my life, I would no longer feel surprised if human level artificial intelligence came in the next five, 10 years. That's like, you know, that's like a very different situation that I think I've ever you know, been in. Um, the second is I'm also placing more weight on um, the idea of an intelligence explosion than I did as well, mm -hmm. uh, where you know, the key, one of the key questions is, if you make a certain amount of progress within AI, how hard is it to make additional progress? The harder that is, you know, the steeper the diminishing returns, as it were, the less likely it is you get something like an intelligence explosion. And I think the last year just shows, like, wow, actually it looks like you just pile on more compute and you get amazingly more powerful tech um, capabilities. Uh, if that just continues over 
um, the next five, 10 years, and we don't really have any strong arguments as to why it won't, um, then, I mean, then the, the sky's the limit, essentially. Um, there's some good news as well. I mean, I do think the way the kind of tech tree within AI has shaked, shaken out um, is somewhat reassuring from an alignment perspective. Like, it does look like, at least if we choose to, we might be able to build um, what get called oracle AIs. So AI systems, you can just ask them a question, they just tell you the answer. And they can do this reasoning without being an agent. Um, uh, it's also, like, I think a very fortunate fact about the world compared to how it could have been and how I would have expected it to be, that the leadership of all three of the main AI labs um, are very concerned about existential risk. That really needn't have been the case. Um, that's not like all thing, a complete endorsement of them or anything, but uh, you know, the norm, it's not like the leaders of Exxon and Chevron and so on were really concerned about climate change. Um, so those are some good things too. So yeah, more work in technical AI safety. I think even more work in governance. Mm -hmm. um, I actually think that's probably gonna be more of where the action lies. That means more people going into politics and policy. Um, then other things um, I, I at least personally would be excited about people doing. Um, further research into uh, kind of global priorities and cause prioritization. Um, it's actually striking to me how little work there really is. <laughs> it gets kind of talked about in positive terms a lot, but I actually think it's quite rare that someone says, okay, my mission for the next three years, 10 years, is uh, really to find, figure out what we're missing, what we can be doing better um, within broader effective altruist thought or within the world as a whole. Um, or, and let alone even better to try and come up with your own worldview entirely. Uh, and then finally is also just public advocacy. Um, I really think, you know, not that many people try and kind of go out into the public arena and advocate for ideas. Mm -hmm. um, you don't make much money from it. From it. Um, you get a lot of hate, um, basically whatever you say. Um, but if you are willing to do it, I think it can be enormously impactful, um, precisely for this reason that it's kind of, um, it's kind of neglected. And, you know, the a number of ideas there are within the broader effective altruist world um, that could have someone who's just going out there, writing books, giving talks, um, is very, very high. And so that's something I'd love to see more people doing too. Perfect. So now to start on the audience questions and directly following up from that, one person is asking, your timelines for AI seem potentially short, an X risk uh, of uh, stemming from AI. In that case, is it possible to justify the diversification and the diversity of research and effort within the effective altruist movement and maybe research more generally, or should it all be focused there? Yeah, so um, I think it's like the diversification is strongly justified, actually. Mm -hmm. um, uh, on the kind of timelines, I'll caveat, I'm, at, the current, <laughs> at the time being, I'm deliberately not saying any numbers because I don't want to, I'm planning to just learn a lot more and think a lot more over the next three to six months and I don't want to anchor myself. Um, though I am happy to say that I do think that conditional on an intelligence explosion happening, I think that the next decade is more likely, it's more likely to happen in the next decade than it was in any decade in the past, mm. or I would expect any decade after that point. I really do think there's good arguments for thinking the next decade is special in that regard. Um, but yeah, I think there's absolutely strong arguments for diversification. Um, I mean, it's this very familiar 
thought within EA that uh, different you know, different options for impact can vary by orders of magnitude. Um, that can be because uh, just the intervention is 10 times better, um, or it can be because your personal fit is 10 times better. Um, you know, I think it's just very clear that you can take one person who's just really motivated and really talented at a certain thing, someone else who doesn't care about that thing, and the first person can do something, you know, 10, 100 times better. Um, that combined by, with the fact then that um, I think you should certainly have significant probability, let's say that's at least 25%, on transformative AI never happens, or it happens in a long time, <laughs> like maybe like many decades. And, okay, well, that only reduces your impact <laughs> by a factor of four, at most, if you um, are thinking about the other 75%. That can very easily get overwhelmed by all of the other um, considerations, like your personal fit or like just other solutions being more impactful. And so I'm actually quite worried that given how uh, mesmerizing, <laughs> almost like astounding, the recent developments in AI are, that everyone will want to flock to them and this core idea of effective altruism or some of these other cause areas, in fact, um, get unduly neglected. Um, I'm actually quite worried about that. And so, yeah, I feel very confident we need to take a diverse approach. And also, the people who are like, I'm, there are very few people I've found who don't believe that, <laughs> even if they spend all of their time like hitting the kind of AI drum. So. Thank you very much. We're getting a lot of questions. Um, perhaps next, to what extent do you think neoliberal market capitalism <laughs> undermines moral progress? Um, yeah, I think generally I want to just kind of, generally in conversation want to like ban the term like neoliberal market capitalism because it's just so broad mm. um, where that encompasses like the US and Dubai and Sweden and I'm like, okay, these are so different mm. um, where you know, the fundamental of capitalism is like you have private ownership of property. That's kind of like I don't see that itself like having a huge impact on the nature of moral progress compared to like specific implementations of that, mm -hmm. where in some countries, the rich can just buy influence <laughs> and engage in misinformation campaigns. That's very bad from a perspective of moral progress. In other countries, you have very intense redistribution and a much larger fraction of the population can engage in kind of you know, moral debate and so on. Um, that would look much better from the perspective of moral progress. Um, and so my view would be like, yeah, it depends much more on the precise implementation mm -hmm. rather than whether it's um, like a capitalist economy or not. Got it. What public perception of EA do you think is most harmful and that you would most want to get rid of? Mm. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot. Um, that I could say, probably. Um, uh, I think one thing that frustrates me a lot is this idea of EA or people within EA as being kind of arrogant. As in, like, I mean, it is, like, an unfortunate a fact about the word. So effective altruism is like, we're effective and you're not. Um, you know, that's part of it. Whereas the underlying project, I think, is actually extremely humble. Mm. It's saying, like, look, there's just so many problems in the world, and we don't know, 
like certainly don't know sitting in the armchair like what is the best here and it's a project of like trying to figure that out and even if we're taking action making big bets normally that's like well we don't know but the right response to uncertainty is not to just sit in your chair and feel despondent it's to actually do something mm -hmm. and so i think a lot of people yeah sadly think that oh the point of effective altruism is going and saying we've figured it all out and then like hitting other people with that stick whereas instead it's saying like no we don't know the answer and we want to we wanted to try and work on it. Yep. So we began the talk by thinking about, or by asking you what you thought EA was going to become. From where you are sitting now, if not making timelines on, a, on AI, but instead on EA, where do you think the movement will go? Do you think it will grow bigger? Do you think it will splinter? Do you have any predictions or feelings about the movement and its future? Uh, yeah, I think. One is I expect it to keep growing. Mm -hmm. um, I think my default trajectory, not like way higher than 50%, but maybe a little bit higher, mm -hmm. is that it does become really quite a significant kind of intellectual force in the world in the same way as the green movement, um, or even like, dem you know, saying it would get, get as big as kind of so the idea of socialism or something like, okay, that's quite a high bar. But like as big as kind of environmentalist ideas, I think, um, uh, is actually like pretty plausible, pretty compelling to me. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of like, will it splinter and so on? I mean, if you look at the, you know, just other sorts of intellectual and social movements, almost always you get sub, you know, sub communities in that. Um, often you get enormous amounts of infighting and so on. EA so far has done remarkably well um, at avoiding that. It's obviously been like a tough year. And so I think we've seen quite a lot more mm -hmm. uh, kind of infighting than there has been. My best guess, again, is that that won't lead to, you know, total collapse <laughs> of the movement. Um, I wouldn't at all be surprised, and again, would think it's probably quite likely, and maybe even healthy, if as it grows, you start to get, like, sub-communities within that. Yeah. Not necessarily even by cause area, that's often how people think, but also just by, um, Perhaps it's more by like methodology or even by culture. Um, and I think that could happen. Mm -hmm. So just to draw you briefly on one issue that people are interested in, given the consequences from FTX, SBF, uh, how have your beliefs changed after that? Um, uh, yeah, I mean, there's lots of things I could say. Um, and... Uh, yeah, I mean, one big thing is, I think, the just distribution of how badly someone can act <laughs> is, like, quite a lot worse um, uh, than what I would have thought before. And that's really sad, and, like, including someone who has, like, otherwise um, seemingly credible indications of, like, being a morally good person. And so that's the kind of biggest thing, and it's a really sad update, because it's, like, you sound pretty jaded if you're like, well, I just trust people less now. Um, uh, so that's one big thing. There's tons I still don't know, um, and we'll find out more in the coming months. There's going to be a lot of coverage um, uh, in the media. There's going to be lots of information coming out in the trial. There'll be books written on the topic. Michael Lewis, um, one of the leading financial writers, was writing a biography of Sam. Um, yeah, the author of The Big Short. The author of The Big Short, yeah. Um, uh, before the collapse happened. So we're going to get tons more information that will help me make more sense of what happened. Um, in terms of uh, 
what EA should be doing differently. I mean, there's lots of things, but one update is just, you know, there's gonna be a lot more scrutiny and a lot more skeptical of skepticism of people um, advocating EA. Doesn't mean we shouldn't advocate it. The idea is as important as true as ever. But I think it does mean we should kind of double down and re-emphasize and even build into the very core of how we're talking about EA. The principles that I think everyone here holds and agrees of honesty and transparency and um, moral cooperativeness and humility because um, we will be getting held to a higher standard. And so meet, meeting that higher standard and being able to legibly meet it will be even more important, I think. Yeah. One question we had uh, was about value lock-in stemming from AGI. If you think that it is maybe some of a, or in some way a random walk where maybe sometimes we improve our morals, sometimes they get worse, would that be a reason to lock in now? It's like, well, this is the best we have so far. Uh, I think probably not. I mean, I think, again, my best guess is that our moral views are probably wildly off. Mm -hmm. um, like, we probably are living, you know, have moral views that are as bad as, uh, you know, the Romans' views on women or slaving, slave owners or, or, uh, or enslaved people or foreigners and so on. And so I feel like very nervous about uh, any thought of like, oh, we should be locking in like the best thing we've got. And also because like the good state could be that, okay, well, AI is just helping us <laughs> make amazing moral progress. Mm. Like, that's not this, um, or and what we do just, you know, have time to reflect and deliberate. I don't think that's this totally crazy idea that we could make um, a lot more moral progress. Mm -hmm. um, and so I don't think, I wouldn't be willing to take that kind of, <laughs> it's kind of like a gamble of just like, okay, yeah, what we've got now. Yeah. On that basis and where you also talked and thought about AI, should we have an AGI moratorium? Yeah, I mean, I think this is a really subtle issue. Mm. Um, so certainly, suppose we have this perfectly global, collective, um, uh, you know, globally coordinated decision where we just stop building new supercomputers <laughs> um, for really quite a long time, like maybe decades, um, or even maybe longer. Mm -hmm. uh, then, yeah, I'd be in favor of that. Um, perhaps we would still want, you know, like I think the latest round, you know, the latest round of language, language models, I think are gonna be net enormously beneficial for the world. Like I've been using them to learn new stuff. Like um, it's possible every child could have <laughs> with this or like maybe the next generation, like the world's best expert as a one-on-one -on -one tutor from a very early age. And that can help with things like AI alignment too. So I think, but yeah, if we had that carefully coordinated um, world, then that is what I would want. Um, in a world where we're not coordinated in that way, then it's quite subtle. So the thing that I really think is that the date when we get AGI is not as important as how long a period do we have from sub AI to super, super intelligence. So if you look at, um, so Tom Davidson's a researcher at Open Philanthropy, um, and he has a report to estimate kind of takeoff speeds, which is the point of time of 20%, AI that can automate 20% of human tasks to AI that can do 100% of them, and then from there to superintelligence, which I can't remember quite how he defines. And he suggests it's on the order of months to a couple of years. 
And that's the crucial thing. Like, that is not, if you told me that that time period was going to be 50 years, I would be not that concerned, because mm. where, you know, we would have enormous opportunity to try something, it doesn't quite work, we learn, like, we have this, like, messy process of trial and error. But if we're trying to do that within a period of only a few months or a couple of years, that's much, much harder. And so the key question is, can we extend that time period by as much as possible? Um, so that it's not months, but instead it's many years or even, even decades at that point. And sometimes calls to stop AI now, I think, could be worse from the period of um, uh, shortening that like, takeoff moment. Because, for example, the FLI letter, like I didn't sign it because I was just too confused about it. But it does mean it's like, okay, you pause for six months, and then suddenly, rather than just having like one or two labs, you've got all these other labs that are at the race, you know, right at the baseline, kind of ready to go. And that I would expect to lead to faster progress after that point. So, lots to say. <laughs> there has been a large movement away from the sort of very classical evidence-based evaluating charities towards this more speculative approach, which is also evidence-based, but quite different with thinking about the future and trying to predict it here. Does the, what do you feel about this change? Do you, and do you think that there is a moral difference between the very speculative sort of research with the more classic and indeed funding with the more classic methods? Uh, yeah, I mean, like overall, you know, um, Overall, I do think it's correct that many more people should be working on these things that um, kind of are, yeah, are more speculative. Um, I think a couple of things. One is like, I've been really amazed by how much the seemingly speculative work has panned out in practice, mm -hmm. where, you know, I remember going to these seminars at the Future of Humanity Institute back in kind of 2009, 2010, and I was just so frustrated. I was like, this is just pie in the sky. This is like armchair theorizing about these technologies that aren't here. This is like a total waste of time. I'm gonna work on giving what we can and get more people giving money to bed nets. Um, and now I look back and I'm like, okay, well, what predictions would I have made? Would, um, and I think I would have been wrong at like, firstly, we've had a wide scale pandemic. <laughs> um, uh, it really does look like there's very rapid advances in um, our ability to create pathogens that could kill hundreds of millions or billions of people. Suddenly, like, we are developing systems that look really quite, you know, human-like in terms of their ability to reason and so on. It really doesn't, no longer seems like sci-fi that's very far away. Mm. Also, just like, it's now mainstream to worry about AI existential risk. The fact that... Um, the fact that these risks are now taken as seriously as they are, despite, from my perspective, seeming such, like such absurd pie-in-the-sky reasoning 10, 10, 15 years ago, I think is actually tantamount to the fact that, wow, you really can make <laughs> more progress than you might expect um, by having a really good gears-level understanding of the world and making projections on the basis of that. Um, so that's one thing I'd say. Um, but I'd also want to say, like, I think the case for working on things that are just robustly good is stronger than sometimes one gets from the vibe. Like, um, I know someone who only works on, you know, global health and well-being as a grant maker, and he wants to kind of chart this uh, rather sassy kind of graph of, like, um, benefit 
on the y-axis and then different cause areas where it's like global health and well-being and it's like all oh, like 150,000 lives saved and animal well-being and it's hundreds of millions of um, animals and then you know long-termist side of things AI and bio and it's just this huge error bars that go positive and negative um, that's the thing that I think is still like somewhat of an open question is like how reliably can you make positive rather than negative progress on these topics um, and so again that's why I'm at partly in favor of a, a diversity of approaches. Yeah. Maybe one uh, strange approach. What do you think about ethical offsetting? So like eating meat and donating to uh, animal charity. Okay, yeah, I've written quite a bit about, <laughs> I've written a bit about this. Mm -hmm. So I think it depends exactly on, so my view is that you can offset carbon and you can't offset meat consumption. Um, though, yeah, so in the case of carbon emissions, um, Supposing I, you know, drive to work and then give to a charity that is genuinely, like most offsets are bullshit, um, but uh, give to a charity that's genuinely reducing the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere. Um, if you were to ask, but, and I do that by more, so I've emitted 100 kilograms of CO2, but this charity will reduce CO2 emissions by one ton. If you could ask everyone in the world, including future people, would you rather I do that or rather I stay at home and do neither of those things? They would all say, yes, I would prefer you to do that. And so that gives you this kind of ethical justification. If, however, I were to, let's say, kill you and then donate 10,000 pounds to AMF, <laughs> saving two lives, would I have offset? Could I offset that ethically? And the answer is no, I think, because <laughs> you can be reassured. Um, and the answer is no, because I can't ask every person, would you rather I do those two things? Because you probably would say, no, don't kill me. Um, and so you can, you can object to that. And then the animal case is weird, um, because um, you shouldn't have asked me on a nerdy ethics question, because I'm <laughs> going to just keep going. Um, the animal case is weird, because you know, when you buy meat, like, what's the animal you're harming? Well. It's the animal you cause to bring into existence via the price, via the demand signal of you buying the corpse of an animal that was killed. Um, and so who's got the complaint? I think for animals that have lives not worth living, um, such as uh, factory farm pigs and chickens, I think quite uncontroversially, um, then I think they have the complaint. So the chicken that you bring into existence, I think, can say, um, uh, <laughs> Screw you, I didn't want to live. Um, and that is not, that chicken will have that complaint even if you then donate to animal welfare charities. So um, that's my view, like from the kind of fundamental um, uh, kind of moral perspective. That said, <laughs> I think if I go and advocate, then I would much rather that people eat meat and donate to animal welfare charities than... Um, not, <laughs> then not donate, I'd rather they do both, but um, if it's one or the other, um, then become vegan and don't donate. Because the amount of anim the number of animals they can help is so much greater um, via donations than via their personal consumption. Yeah. Actually, maybe, uh, yeah, briefly on that basis, people have, uh, talked about sort of animal ethics and how we should evaluate an animal's happiness. And a lot of people 
the sort of traditionally have gone in for, okay, well, we should maybe like try and recreate its conditions in the wild, minus the predators, hopefully. But I believe that some other philosophers are suggesting, okay, actually, that isn't the way to make an animal happy. Maybe all they want to do is have sex or something. Do you think that for that reason we should actually change the way that we're treating animals or change the way that we think about what it means to have like ethically sourced meat? Uh, it's a great question. And yeah, I'll definitely flag I'm not an expert on um, kind of animal well-being. Uh, but insofar as I have um, instincts on this question, it would be in the direction of thinking that we could give animals... So supposing we have to farm some animals, or that will happen anyway, we can't change that, and we're just people asking for advice on how do we make them as well off as possible, then I would think that, yeah, you can do much better than life in the wild. I mean, consider human beings, um, you know, life in kind of hunter-gatherer era was quite bad. <laughs> um, I mean, it was okay in some ways, but um, if you got sepsis from a wound, that would be incredibly painful. You wouldn't get any um, pain relief. Um, you might die from it. Life expectancy was maybe 30 years. Um, uh, your food like consumption would be incredibly mundane and so on. And these are kind of, you know, you don't want to anthropomorphize animals. Obviously, you can, it's very easy to do that. But there are some things that seem like they do, would transfer over, like pain is bad. <laughs> you can give animals anesthetic. Um, you can tell that. Like, you can tell which foods they like more than um, which others, and perhaps those aren't the foods they'll get in the wild. Um, so I think we probably could do better um, than merely the baseline of um, kind of life in the wild. Yeah. Unfortunately, we have run out of time. <laughs> First of all, Will, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much. Excellent questions from everybody. <laughs> as well. Just a flag for everyone who hasn't had a chance to have your questions answered. Will does now have office hours, which we will be told more details about briefly. So do feel free to go to those and ask more. Once again, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.